Britannica is thrilled to introduce Launchpack's GCSE, winner of the BET Award 2021 for Best Classroom Aid for Learning, Teaching and Assessment. We understand that budgets are tight and resources limited. Launchpacks is competitively priced and guaranteed to enhance your digital and classroom resources. Let us prove this to you by giving you a free trial access. Plus, all GA teachers get 10% off. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy this next Jog Pod with John. Hello there. Time for another Jog Pod. Today, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Kirsten Coftry. This is a really interesting story, Kirsten, of yours. You Geography degree, then you... You upped sticks and left the country, went to Australia and, a, and an event coordinator for an IT journalism company. Now you're back, qualified teacher. You've done a number of years of teaching, but you've moved on from that. You're now a homeschooling mother of three and running your own successful business. I, how you manage it, I don't know, but we're going to find out. Welcome to JobPod. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, John. <laughs> Yes, I, I was lucky to start my career um, after my geography degree in um, a startup company in uh, Sydney when Web2 was really kind of taking off and um, changing the internet from a repository of information to more of a social experience. Um, and I had a really inspirational mentor who'd founded the company and he gave me um, as a new graduate um, opportunities to experiment with the technology to make the user experience for the people attending our events um, more, more customised. And we were, you know, startup companies, you, you need to kind of bootstrap and use the best of your resources. So it allowed our really small team to appear bigger than than it was. So that was really um, inspiring for me. And I think also having a geography degree made me really um, good at thinking about systems and managing stakeholders. So I really love putting that into practice um, in the real world. But then you moved back to teach, well, back into education. You'd been in as a, as a, as a consumer, but back into education then as a, as a provider, as a teacher. Why did you, what made you think that? What was the, was the decision-making? Because that sounds a fascinating uh, experience at the beginning with that company. Was it something that you picked up working with them? Um, yes, and I guess, um, you know, life happens and it was a, a long, long journey to get into teaching, really. I, um, I actually gave up my career to follow my husband around the world uh, with his career and our three um, small children. So it was actually after a career break that I looked to get uh, into teaching. I was looking for a, um, a career that I could have around my children. Um, but also I, that relationship that I was in wasn't positive for me or my children. So I looked to teaching as a way to escape that and uh, find a place for me and my children to, to live. Um, in I was I was aspiring for a boarding school where we could we could move in, and I think um, well I was incredibly grateful at the time um, to receive one of the first teacher training scholarships from um, the RGS, and uh, that really helped me to yeah kickstart my career back um, 
back into doing something that I really loved. My passion for geography really never left me. So it seemed a natural um, thing that could allow me to be uh, realise what I what I love doing and support my children. But what I really found incredibly frustrating about it was that, you know, why couldn't teaching be a place where I could actually earn good money as well? Why did it have to be something that was, was a, a job that just didn't actually allow me much time with my children, despite what people think about holidays and, and all these great extra times teachers teachers have. It is not a family-friendly job at all. And um, also one where I couldn't actually earn a lot of money. So I found that that frustrating. It's only non-teachers who think that teachers have long holidays. <laughs> exactly. It's not actually very true. Most teachers that you talk to will spend an awful lot of time in, in, in all of their holidays thinking about, even if it's just thinking about, but that's, that's working time. Um, so you were able to use both sets of skills then. So you, you've been a practicing teacher for a while, but you also have this expertise in, in IT. So in 2019, a little bit fast forwarding, but you've been teaching for a while and you're thinking, hmm, I'm sure I can use my IT skills. And you founded uh, GOVLE. Yes. Um, so actually, one of the things as well that I was so surprised about um, going back into uh, the classroom um, in that sort of order in my career was that nothing had changed since I'd been there. Um, and I just, I guess, having had experience outside and seeing all of the, the advances that were being made elsewhere, it just seemed a bit absurd to me that they weren't being um, used in a classroom, or even more weirdly, where they were, then not really being used to realise their potential. You know, it was more like, oh, shiny technology, a bit of an add-on, a bit of a, a sales gimmick for, for things, rather than enabling the learning to happen. So, yes, that's that's what, what really interested me. And in fact, in my NQT year, I worked in a very interesting school where there were several campuses around the country and um, I ended up heading up the geography on my campus but teaching kids in other campuses around the UK so we had to do that on Zoom and in yeah in my NQT year that was kind of initiation by <laughs> by F. I think it's important to draw that distinction that you've made there between using IT or improving the quality of the pupils learning in the particular subject that they're in? How is it enhancing their geography? Not how is it making them better at using IT? Uh, and, and you're right about the flashy gimmicks. I think that's something that we'll, we'll, we'll need to talk about as we go, because you must have given that quite a bit of thought I want this to enhance their learning because I'm a teacher, but I have IT skills as well. That's a real nice mix. Well, yeah, and I guess um, GeoVle, as we named it to start with, Geo meaning Earth and VLE, a virtual learning ecosystem. And the ambition really was that this could change how um, learning happened for the world. And <laughs> seems a rather... Um, grand vision but um, but then ironically as well as a geography teacher what technology allows you to do is to to um, not be confined by the geography 
so what what the ambition is is that um students wherever they are in the world can access the same group of inspirational experts um as anybody else not defined by their you know their socioeconomic geographies or wherever they they're from so that's how i saw that it could happen but then as well there there is a balance of using technology to allow kids to build up the skills that they're going to actually need in the workplace. I mean, when I started my career in Sydney, it was, uh, you know, it was really a whole world opening up for me because you realise, you know, I'd come, I'd come out of the, the traditional system and I had been very successful in it. And I, I had a first class honours degree from Southampton University and um, all these wonderful pieces of paper. But when you, you know, you get into a career and you start off, none of it really doesn't matter at all. It's your ability to think on your feet, to innovate, to be creative, to collaborate with people, you know, all over the world that you, you know, I think a school didn't really necessarily pre prepare me for that. So I think we've now got a duty to, to equip students with the skills that they're going to need um, in this what we're calling it, what is it, the fourth industrial revolution, so that we can be more human in our use of technology. Um, and also students are, this is their, this is their playground now, you know, this is their natural space. When we started running our classes during um, the start of COVID for kids between, we had five-year-olds online up to 12-year-olds and they, in some instances, were the ones that were showing the tutors how to do cool stuff on Zoom and how to share their screens and how to... We, we need to find that balance. I suppose that there's a difficulty in, in terms of access because some students just don't have access to that sort of technology. And that's a problem that we, we will have to, to face. And, and, and COVID highlighted that, that real differential, that real inequality which I think is a, well, it's, it's an issue for the government to, to think about and to talk about in terms of education. When I was in school and trying to use IT in geography, it was always difficult because of, in my time, it was an IT room and you had to book it. You didn't have laptops that you opened up. And we produced things, but the continuity just wasn't there. They got to have access all the time. I'll flip this open and I'll use it now when it's appropriate. I'll close it when it's not. And it, it, it's just another thing, like a book on the desk or a globe that you pick up. Yes, exactly. And I've worked in, um, you know, schools, as I mentioned, the one where it was, you know, school by Zoom, um, you know, compared to some other schools where it was um, mobile phones in their pockets that we could pull out and, you know, access Google Maps and, and things like that. I think where there is a divide absolutely and the government are looking at strategies to improve education I think that really needs to be top priority and um, that access to technology because um, I think there are a lot of random initiatives that are sort of kind of coming up or or just misplaced um, money being spent and I think that yeah the government does have a responsibility to fill that that gap and it should be urgent and also we need to prepare teachers on how to manage and use those things um, appropriately. I'm not even going to ask you 
about mobile phones in classrooms yet because there'd be a Twitter storm. So I think we'll just we'll settle on that one. Yeah, they're either the the worst piece of evil in the world, or else they're a brilliant piece of technology, and you need to control their use. And the the Twitter storm that we would um, we'd unleash. So I leave that one okay. <laughs> just for now, <laughs> but. Geovle, G-O-V-L-E, evolved, didn't it? So it's not it's not stayed static. You've you've now developed and rebranded. Yes, and I think um, Geovle also kind of had a the um, name wanted. We wanted to evoke a sense of evolving. It was always going to be a platform that was evolving and being co-created by um, the students and the educators. And um, it certainly has done over the last couple of years. And we've now got students from um, Saudi Arabia and Zambia and South Africa, um, Australia, uh, they're in lockdown at the moment. And I, um, that kind of attracted the attention of um, a business accelerator program that got in touch with us and um, have helped to, um, solidify some of our, our um, business planning and um, and our ambitions. And I think for that global audience, we needed a name that was easier to pronounce, quite simply, but also one that would be able to encapsulate the, the mission that we were on. And um, in fact, Gaia made perfect sense to me. And um, geographers might have come across the, the term, sometimes it's controversial, but that Gaia is an earth systems theory where um, kind of organic and inorganic components on the earth um, work together in a complex system to create sustainability. And so for me, that was my that's my big mission you know that's how do we use technology and human educators to come up with something that is self-sustaining and sustainable because over the last year it has been incredible the advances in um ed tech and ai in tech you know in the educational space and um resources for home learners and it's incredible it is incredible but in my experience in the classroom and as an online tutor and as a um, mother homeschooling my three in the background, all of these things are well and good, but the most fundamental component in that ecosystem is still the human educator. So it's, it's um, I think Gaia really, we're really proud of the name and the, the ambition that we have to, to bring those, those components together. Can I ask you about artificial intelligence in, in education then? I, a friend of mine has been working with uh, uh, an organisation in Sri Lanka and he's looking at AI for doctors and also AI for the legal profession. And he was asking me, where would it work in teaching? And I thought, well, I don't know enough. I don't know enough to not, to not even know what I don't know. So I don't know the answer. <laughs> Um, I think it's it's interesting because, um, you know, big players in the space now, um, Century Tech obviously um, comes to mind, are doing amazing things with um, AI in education and really levelling the playing field for students to have access to really quality um, resources that adapt to the student's learning path. And 
I think there is absolutely a place for that going forwards and certainly in collaboration with schools um, and sort of helping educators to know how to how to use those to free them up to have more time in the classroom to differentiate the learning. I think there is a very real, real place for that there. Um, for what we're doing in um, Gaia Learning with technology and all of these data points that we're collecting through our one-to-one classroom platform and our flipped classroom is actually to flip the, the, the data model kind of on its head where we're not interested in big data, in collecting, you know, hundreds of thousands of ways that, that kids learn. All we're interested in is that that individual child. How does one child learn? What are they interested in? We start right from there um, doing a learning profile on them, what their successes, uh, strengths and weaknesses are, and what their key interests and passions are in their learning. And we build it from there. And we are interested in capturing everything from how they're feeling in their one-to-one sessions to which kinds of resources they're accessing most um, in our um, curriculum. And we use Britannica for that. So um, that's been really handy for us. And then um, being able to report on that for the parent, because certainly my learning through lockdown as a parent was, you know, I really, I want to be involved in my kids' learning. I, I am incredibly passionate about what they what they're learning and what they're um what they're interested in and I have three very different um children (laughs) and it's still that conversation at the dinner table of so you know what did you learn today nothing or (laughs) um and where we capture all that learning through our different platforms, you can see it. You can have it reported back in a dashboard that summarizes those things and really involves the parents and makes them, you know, empowered to have meaningful conversations with their children about what they've what they've learnt. They had several parents on just recently who were talking about their experience of what it was like having their children at home. Most of them felt a sense of panic, I think and, and um, perhaps inadequacy. I couldn't do everything. How do you manage it? How do you manage to look after them and do the job too? Um, yeah, it is, it is absolutely um, been a challenge and certainly creating Gaia Learning has come out of a very deep and painful experience of understanding just how hard it is to do that. So um, my three children um, access in the mornings my network of tutors so they have um, they choose topics that they're interested in Uh, last time one of them picked the oceans Uh, one was looking at space and one was looking at uh, endangered animals I think and so the tutors created a sort of journey of learning that covered science and maths and English where they were just pretty much doing what they were interested in, but underlying it, it was mapped to the curriculum so that, you know, it's still parents want to know that if, if something changes, if something I want to put them back into school, that they're not behind. Um, and 
that also separated us. So it meant I was teaching students in other countries online um, in the mornings. They were doing their learning um, in the mornings as well. Because it's so concentrated in that one-to-one platform, um, we only do three hours of school a day. Um, and that's enough. So the afternoon then is, well, it was the same walk <laughs> around our neighbourhood. And um, as a single parent, I was lucky to bubble up with my parents. Uh, we were allowed to form a bubble during COVID. So we had one day a week with um, they had with their grandparents doing artwork with granny and in the shed with grandpa and I think there are also those lovely stories through COVID of um, real connections again with parents and finding out what their children are learning and are interested in. Um, So, yeah, it it was a struggle, but it was we found we found a blended balance in the end. (laughs) It must have been quite a difficult decision, even though you were committed to it, to, to remove your children from the traditional education system. That's quite a scary thing to do. And then the, the second scary thing is if they're only doing three hours, uh, I, I, given what you just said, mind, uh, which packs in enough, I'd be thinking, have I mapped that against the national curriculum? What would, what would off, well, I shouldn't ask this, but what would offset say? Yeah, so... Again, and that's why um, kind of leaning on the Britannica resources have been really reassuring because they do map the national curriculum um, for England and Wales and Scotland. And so it it was um, it was easy to do it like that. And also we employ and um, our network of tutors are all um, have 10, 20 years each in education. So we've got the experts there who understand the requirements um, that the kids need to cover. But certainly in COVID, it was a case of prioritizing well-being. And I think parents need to, I need to give myself this advice as well, to just not feel so guilty for what we survived um, because it really was a, a very strange time. So to come out of it with sanity and with um, relationships and things intact, I think is is success that I don't care. Um, I don't need to be measured by Ofsted for, for that. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's just, it's yeah, been interesting. <laughs> it's me because I then started doing a little bit of research about the number of children who are being homeschooled I'd not given it much thought when I was teaching, but actually, according to the BBC website, now, this isn't the latest figures, but it said it's risen by over 40% in three years to about 50,000, I think. But that was for 2017. I should think the figure's much higher even now, three years on. Yes, and, you know, you referred earlier to, um, you know, Twitter debates, but actually I got into a real one on LinkedIn over that particular article, I think, because it's interesting. And I think as geographers, we're, we're well aware of the use of statistics and um, scary looking maps and things in articles like that, where it was sort of presented, I think, in a in a in a way that wasn't entirely positive, because if we look at those statistics, it's still an incredibly tiny proportion of um kids in school in the UK that are being homeschooled, like less than a percent or something. But we do need to take note that it is 
it is a, a rising trend. And um, also to question why more parents are choosing that. It is not an easy option. It is not an easy out. Um, and so I think it's parents that are that are choosing that and certainly ones that I've been in touch with in the homeschooling community um, have been um they are upset with the, the traditional system. It's not meeting the needs of their children um, or their family's um, beliefs and requirements. And it, it's, for me as well, it was a really scary thing to, to, to jump ship. <laughs> um, so I think for me, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't an easy decision, but it was certainly something that I believed in at the core of my being and it's something that you can't talk about to other people I think unless you are living that example of it um so yeah so we have done that that said my eldest son has made the decision um on his own to want to go back into the traditional system so he's starting year seven um this week and I think what it's about mostly is giving our children a voice, giving them choices and for the system to be more malleable, to allow for blended and flexible options um, where whether it's because of a pandemic or whether it's for family travel or illness or whatever it is, that we should have more choice or children should have more choice over their education. Yes, a friend of mine who's, one of the best teachers I think I've, I've ever worked with always said that it's education's a Victorian construct where we pile 30 children into a classroom uh, for social engineering more than anything. Um, and he, he was brilliant at it, but there are, I, there are different ways and it's thinking outside of that box. So that's how you'd like it to develop in the future, do you think? That, so that it, your son has those sorts of choices but you can do a, a mix and match. Yeah, or or even that, um, you know, that Victorian system of 30 children in one classroom. I I mean, I think what my son is missing is that so that social interaction and, and wanting to go and play sport. He misses, you know, team sports. So um, yes, I think there is still a place for a school and places where schools are or should be safe places for children to, um, to be, but maybe the future classroom is 30 classrooms in the same classroom where kids can be together, um, not necessarily defined by their birthdays um, and age groups, but where they can, you know, they can still get a hot meal, they can still play team sports, they can still, um, you know, get that well-being and, and interaction from inspirational adults and things around them. But I think we have to take, you know, see technology as having the opportunity to personalise the learning for children. And, and that's where it's exciting. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I also part of the research I did, I read the State of the Nation report. This was October 2020, um, which gives an in-depth picture of the experiences of children during the pandemic. And it talked, as you've just said, it talked about how it affected their well-being. Um, and the ones who were at home, some of them found it difficult 
to motivate themselves, to maintain that motivation. Um, and parents found it difficult to support their children with the motivation because, they, well, I, I'd be the same in maths, I think. I just wouldn't understand <laughs> what they needed to be able to succeed. But it, it's, um, it's challenging. How do you keep motivated? I don't know how you motivate your three. Um, well, I think it is it's just trying to keep um, keep that social connection in whatever way that that comes. I mean, during COVID, we ran um, we ran classes based around the sustainable development goals for kids from, yeah, as I said, five to twelve. And we broke them up in the day. So there was a a starter sort of 45 minutes in the morning where kids got to come together, see other kids, um, discuss the ideas, uh, be introduced to these big real world problems that we're, you know, we're trying to solve by 2030, um, run around the house and collect things to kind of come up with their solutions. And then we had a drop in in the middle of the day and then a show and tell at the, in the afternoon. And that worked really well, I think, for parents, certainly in the first lockdown, because it meant there was some structure to the day, um, some routine. Um, it was it was real world learning. Um, and still, as a geographer, I kind of think the purpose of education is still about the real world. What why are we why are we teaching um, curriculum unless it is to solve the problems that we're very much <laughs> more than knee deep in at the moment so that that connection certainly helped them and controversially as well I am not opposed to my children playing collaborative games online and I think they were a saving grace throughout the those dark dark lockdown months um, where you know, I could hear them playing and talking to their friends and creating virtual worlds together um, and, you know, just being kids, kids in a very strange world that we we don't really understand, but one that I don't think we need to be as fearful of as some, you know, debates that I've heard. Well, I agree with you. One of my sons used to play these um, conquest games, but the, the strategy ones... And his knowledge of European geography, he knew where the Oblast of Kaliningrad was. I bet you don't, Dad. What? Where have you got all this from? And he was getting it from those sorts of games. It's difficult because there's an, there's an awful lot of money put into gaming that education hasn't got. So yeah. most educational games are not really games. They're, they're less than that. They're decision-making activities, but you don't get the immersiveness that you would do if you went in and played Lord of the Rings or something. There's a yes. lot of money in one area and not so much in the other. And I think, you know, for what we're doing at Gaia Learning, that is certainly the future of where we see the business evolving into incorporating more virtual reality. Um, and as you say, better games, not just the ones that are, here's an educational game for you. <laughs> Although I must say there was one that my students um, absolutely loved playing at the start of the pandemic called something like Plague, Plague Inc, where you had to sort of set off a virus to see how quickly you could kill people, which I thought was um, <laughs> interesting. But when they changed the rules of those game, of that game, I think, then they had to work out how to stop the virus. And 
I do think those kinds of real world games where you set up a scenario on, um, you know, there's no water in Africa, what are we going to do? And getting kids to, it doesn't have to be a VR game, it can be collaboration online or talking about those sorts of solutions. It's a it's a real possible problem. And um, I think making sure that the curriculum is as relevant and meaningful to to kids that um, you know we can bring all of the the hope and collaboration and fun that kids automatically associate with games to positively solving challenges that we very much have in the real world. <laughs> the other thing that you can't do with the VLE really is launch one and then have students go on and find they can't find something. It's got to be seriously rich. They want to be able to find what they're looking for. So that's I'm sure that's what underpinned your choice of linking with Britannica schools, because that was a rich repository of curated material. You know they're not going to come up with any nonsense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the thing is that we've the internet has been, um, you know, um, it's a wonderful resource, but it's a victim of its success. There's, it's too big. There's too much. There's too much that we can't trust. Um, and again, my experience from from homeschooling was the way that um, the kids were were taught during lockdown was to sort of send physical worksheets and um, lots of links to lots of different resources. Some of them were brilliant, but it ended up having you know hundreds of tabs open everywhere we couldn't I had no oversight over what my children were learning or how they were progressing um and so yes Britannica was just like a um an answer to to a lot of what we'd really been looking for I think that um kind of to link back to what I said about the sort of start of my career in what I saw with that web 2 movement I think Britannica has also been that phoenix from the ashes kind of a success story where that you know those printed encyclopedias that we used to all have of theirs on our um uh bookshelves are now things that kids can um really immerse themselves in uh, it's you know not just articles and images and multimedia but but resources that both the educator and the student could manipulate in real time to personalize yeah so it's been integral to our um our curriculum and our homeschooling provision have you got any feedback from students who've been using it um oh well yeah definitely i think they um one of the nicest things was the other day with one of my students so I actually teach sisters online together and they are at various levels in 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 geography and I was able to give them exactly the same lesson and talk through the same the same content and one of the girls who um and English is a second language for both of them was able to in real time reduce the reading level of the article that I'd given um without her sister knowing um without having to talk to me about it um, and still really feel empowered to, to be part of it. When I did my teacher training, I remember staying or having to stay back late and 
photocopied, you know, three sheets, three piles of worksheets for the high, medium and um, low ability students and students being so aware in the classroom of which sheet they were getting. I love how Britannica just allows that differentiation in a subtle but really, really powerful way um, where they can even have the information read to them if, you know, if that's helpful. Um, They've got a feature on there where the text is highlighted. So for, you know, dyslexic students or EAL students to, um, or those who struggle sort of with visual closure issues to track the words across the page or increase or decrease the font size. Um, They are just subtle, but really, really powerful tools that are helpful. How do their launch packs work? Because I, I, I was reading about those, but I've, I've, I've not had a chance to look in depth yet. So it's brilliant. We've got their launch packs for science and history and geography, and um, they've mapped out the whole curriculum. So when, you know, there's a, um, a module on um, climate change or on, I don't know, medicine through time, it's all there. And they've... Um, got learning uh, routes through. So for non-specialist teachers, they can um, kind of have that support. But they're also really good that you can um, you can modify them. So you can take out or insert other bits. So for subject specialists, you know, it's not, they're not restrictive in any way. Um, you can add in Kahoot quizzes or links to um, videos in there as well. Um, and um, for us, because we have students who use us to supplement their education or sometimes to completely homeschool um, as an alternative, um, that's great because it gives them the flexibility to choose whatever modules they want on a, in a GCSE. So, you know, if you're in school, you only get to choose between whatever the teacher's already picked. In a homeschool environment, we've got a lot more choice. Um, but that also means potentially a lot more workload if our tutors are then having to resource, especially for subjects like history, um, whole schemes of work for particular modules. So having the launch packs there, it's great. It's a great starting point for both both sides to hit the ground running and um, and personalise it. It's an immense piece of work. Then, what are the plans for the future? I've got big plans. <laughs> um, I um. I think having having the the resources like we've got at at the moment where we've got a personalised curriculum and we've got a growing team of of educators. And I say educators because they, I think teachers of the future are going to need a different skill set. They are going to need to be able to um, mentor and coach students um, as well as inspire them in their um, their particular subjects. So um, our team is growing. Um, in the last sort of week and a half alone, I've had more than 100 applications from um, other teachers who really get it and want to be part of this. So currently our, our team is 37 strong. Um, and we, um, we are growing in the expat kind of community globally. Um, 
But what we're really passionate about doing is to introduce our service for um, looked after children in care homes because they should have the same access to our team as um, the the parents who are able to to afford um, to supplement their um, their provision as well. We're also looking to partner with a um, a tech company because we've got all of these really interesting data points that we're collecting, and so to be able to um, really gamify that and show the the progress in a way that involves the parents or the carers of children, um, but also motivates the students more um, in their independent learning. So to be rewarded, to to be able to change the little avatars that they have on their profiles, um, because yeah, sometimes it's not all about monetary rewards, but it's it's the fun and the leveling up and um so so yes <laughs> big plans exciting plans um, how many countries are you in do you do you measure that have you, have you monitored which you're working in so um up until now because this has been a um you know something that has evolved as a sideline um business in the first couple of years it's been growing organically in a sort of opportunistic way and so as much as anything, it's still a, uh, a referrals and word of mouth. And so we've got, as I said, students in, in the Middle East and in Africa and Australia, um, tutors in Sri Lanka and America. But we, we because we're focusing, um, obviously with Britannica, on the British curriculum, and there is still something about the British curriculum that parents around the world sort of strive for to be um, be part of so we are hoping to grow in the UK um, but through uh, through our network of tutors and also doing doing work for kids who who really need this who really need that personalization um, I think it would be very good for international schools they the international schools doing the UK curriculum and that allows them more flexibility I'm interested in what you said about um, looked after children, because there is a cost to this. So is this going to be, are you working ways to subsidise that for them? Well, there is um, there is money available in that sector um, that currently doesn't really have a place or a, a service that like ours um, that will meet those children's needs. So um, for us, and as we grow the business, it's really important for me that that other aim that I had for for educators is that the um, the financial reward for being an educator on our platform is the same for every tutor across every subject, and um, we would look to that sector to to pay for our tutors at that same rate, but for the money to come from um, from government money or pupil premium allocations because you know we want to attract the best 
the best educators and for for education as well to be a sexy career for something that kids aspire to do when they grow up so that you know you don't do like I did a geography um, a level and then degree and then go off and work in IT I think it should be like you know we should be able to inspire kids in a way that we can be creative and we can earn well and um, we can lift people out of poverty and situations like like that. I want to ask you a little bit about <clears throat> um, critical thinking, because if you use Britannica resources and they're brilliant and they're mapped to the the GCSEs, especially the launch packs. Where do you educate them to be very wary about information that they're being given on the internet, which is fake news, which is opinion, not facts? Because all of the Britannica stuff has been properly curated. You know when you go in there that you're getting top stuff. But what you don't know is when somebody else gives you something, it's not that same quality. Well, exactly. So we have um, our flipped classroom um, is hosted on a learning management system called Canvas. So we integrate Britannica into Canvas. And so all of our subject courses within Canvas have um, Britannica in our navigation menu. And um, so where kids access that information is in a very safe, confined um, space where they start from. And as you said, starting from trusted, vetted content that we can trust. Um, I also love their feature in there where you can, um, you know, we're teaching kids as young as eight how to cite their information correctly. You can, they can favourite all of their topics that they've found and then maybe write us a speech or a, a letter to government or something about what they've learned and learn how to write or reference their bibliographies with the Harvard reference system, you know, right from right from the word go. So we are talking to them from age eight about how to um, how to reference trusted content. But then then that gives a safe launching pad to start to dabble onto the internet and how to use Google, how to search um, properly on Google, and then how to, you know, cross-reference what they found out there and see whether that's a, a true or accurate resource. I'm not sure how many times I've had students come to me and say, I heard this on TikTok and this is what that said. And it's like, oh, um, let's just fact check that. So that's um, having that that safe space to start from, I think, is really important. And I think that the future of education is going to be more, um, you know, uh, passion-based um, or project-based learning from the student's point of view. Um, but we're going to need to start that from a place that is very structured and safe and um, and still exists within the confines of where we're currently at with that movement of change in education. So, I think that's really interesting that you do that from such an early age. One of my sons who went to university said to me when he first started, "How do I reference, Dad?" So he hadn't done any referencing even at A level, which is interesting. 
And getting them to check is really important to, to fact check. I, I've worked, I don't know if you've come across the website, but the, um, the South American tree octopus, well, look it up, it's very <laughs> It was set up by a teacher who wanted to show his students or to demonstrate to his students that they could so easily be fooled. So he didn't tell them it was it was fake. It's it's a wonderful website with photos of the the tree octopus. Right. Uh, and it's a bit the same as the Terry Jones BBC April Fools where he's got uh, flying penguins. That's the other one that I've used sometimes and fooling students quite a dramatic learning for them when they realise that they've been taken in hook, line and sinker. I do like your idea of getting them to cross-reference very early on. Yeah, and even our, um, so in our one-to-one learning platform, we also have the same structure to all of our lessons, no matter which educator the students are getting, um, so that, again, they still have those routines in a very independent on-demand space and we always start with that inquiry based um you know way of being able to critically think at the start of a session whether that's an emotive picture of as you said something like that to get them to question and and our role as educators is to to encourage that thinking and and get them to to question yes exactly so and well let's then think about the future and as I was as I was researching some of the things that you've done I I I was minded to go back to David Hicks I I really like his work about geography and futures and he talks about three futures possible futures what might happen probable futures so what's most likely to happen and preferable the, the future that Kirsten, you'd like, what would you prefer to happen? So what do you see in a, a post-COVID future now as we all pile back? Will it will it all be all the same? Everybody back in school? Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? I think possible, possible futures is that I think we've seen now over two years, exams cancelled and teachers being a lot more involved in assessing students work and being um, certainly last in the last year um, being allowed to give feedback on their their students progress so I think possibly that will stay there will be some some change to exams Um, I took part in the future of education's forum uh, recently on LinkedIn and that there was a really big call in that to question GCSEs and the place of them going forward. <laughs> That's a, <laughs> <it's> a shocker. <laughs> <laughs> so I think then, you know, possibly, possibly some change to exams, some more involvement from teachers, um, less pressure on that final summative assessment, um, I think would be a good possibility. But probably, what we're probably going to see is some kind of return to a new normal. And I hate that word, new normal. What does that even mean? But I think where online learning has been done really badly in the lockdown, I think some people have had a real bad experience of it and probably closed their minds to it a little bit. I also think it's been kind of amusing how um, some schools just have replicated and 
a classroom, especially the most kind of the most Victorian kind of classroom online and called it progressive online schooling. Um, so because of that, I think we should just go back to whatever normal was because that's better than that. <laughs> um, and then what was the last one? The, um, the preferable. The preferable, yes, preferable. What do, I, what do I want? So I think preferable is that we learn what the best bits are that we've learned from. Surely there, there is... There is a blend, I think, and there is flexibility that needs to to um, to happen. I mean, for me, the the eight eight thirty till three o'clock school day. What? Why can we? Why do we do, do that? It really perpetuates that inequality in relationships. It means that you know um, women can't. Certainly, I'm talking from my personal experience. I, I couldn't. I physically couldn't be a teacher in the current situation with three kids going to three different schools and, you know, maximizing my um, self as a teacher. So that's not right. And so I think there needs to be some kind of um, flexibility that kids can move in and out of the system, um, whether that's in periods or pockets of time, certainly without parents being, you know, penalized for making those decisions. Um, within the school day, I think more opportunities for project-based learning or inquiry-based learning um, where kids can, can explore and be more creative within the school day, whether that's every day or a, a Friday. Um, and that technology finds its, its rightful place, which is to have the opportunity to personalize learning um, for students so that the most gifted students aren't held back, that they can go as far and fast as they're able to. And then the ones who need more help um, can either use the technology in that way or that they have then got that teacher time freed up to support them um, you know, more in, in the classroom like that. But but yes, there's no, I think we we get confused in the in the debate about it's technology versus this, or it's online versus, um, you know, in person. Those kind of debates are really silly and not helpful. I think it's um, the preferable future is that we, we blend. <laughs> so I'm, I'm excited now by this and I'm a teacher and I want to find out more about Gaia learning and I want to find out more about Britannica launch pads and Britannica anyway. So what's what's my next move? Um, well, we are, our, our team is certainly growing and we um, are also a team of uh, tutors, but also students are, are growing. We welcome um, anybody who, who identifies with um, this grand mission that we have to really to change education. We're a business, but we're also a social movement in, you know, being there to, there's lots of people saying you can't do this in education or wouldn't it be nice if, and we really are a community where we're saying, yes, come see, we're doing it. And, 
um, certainly all of our um, our students and homeschooling students have access to Britannica. Um, Britannica have been incredible in um, organising CPD for our team of tutors so that they are empowered within their subjects um, and also where they work in a cross-curricular way to make the most out of Britannica. So we feel really well supported by, by them and, um, and the resources. And also just like last bit about that is that they're an evolving platform as well. They've been really open to feedback that we've had from students to put in new topics or, um, you know, increase, have different features. And um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it is an evolving space and it is a, a space where it is definitely uh, co-created by all of the educators on our team. But we listen to the kids as well. They are the most important um, people as well in this. And the fact that they can have so much ownership over their learning through these resources, I think is, is amazing. And where we're capturing it with the technology, I think we're really at the forefront of figuring out what good online learning looks like, but maybe what good learning looks like. We'll stop. Well, hopefully we've, uh, we've opened a curtain a little bit and, and peeked into the future <laughs> and, seen a, and seen a brighter one. It's been fascinating for me. It's a, another podcast where I've learned such a lot, trying to find out about what, what you this time, Kirsten, have been aiming to achieve. Um, and you've done so much and <laughs> homeschooled and set up a business but it has it's been a fascinating chat today thank you very much yeah, thanks for having me <laughs>